Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, founder and CEO at RiderFlex. We hope you enjoy today's podcast. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the RiderFlex show for updates on new episodes. And by the way, if you haven't already, check out the book we recently launched, The RiderFlex Guide, Inspiring and Hiring, available for purchase on Amazon. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Try the number one marketing platform for small business. Everything you need from design to marketing to CRM. Learn more at marketing360.com. Marketing 360. Fuel your brand. Andy Brussman on the Rider Flex podcast. Hello, Andy. Good morning. Good morning, Steve. You're in North Carolina, I think. Is that right? Uh, Charleston, South Carolina. So a little Charleston, further Charleston. down the coast. That's right. Charleston. Sorry, Charleston. Charleston's a cool little town. I have, uh, what's the main street there where all the little historic bars and restaurants are? What is that? Not, it's not main, but what is, what street? Yeah, you've got, yeah, I mean, King Street, but I mean, King street. the king entire street. historic district down there has more restaurants and bars. It would take you well over a week to hit every single one. <laughs> uh, I have been obliterated a few times on King Street in my life, just so you know. <laughs> uh, hey, before we get into business, give us the personal Andy stuff, family, mom, dad, siblings, where you grew up, all that good stuff, if you don't mind. Yeah. Uh, so native of northern New Jersey, but uh, haven't been back since 1992 when I got out of college, went to Lynchburg College, where I played tennis uh, for a couple of years, um, okay. uh, lived in Virginia for 20 years, uh, I guess, prior to moving to Charleston, okay. been married over 25 years, have two boys. My son, Campbell, uh, is up at Dickinson College playing baseball, and my younger son, Aiden, is a sophomore in high school, also a baseball player, so we're, we are a, a passionate baseball family, huge huge Yankees fan. So this has been a very ah. difficult week for me um, after the Houston debacle. Um, <laughs> still have family up in Virginia with my sister, my parents in Williamsburg, but have been in Charleston for a little over 10 years. Uh, we we ended up here. Um, I love telling the story. It was a, a Friday night in Richmond, Virginia in February, uh, almost 11 years ago. It was raining and snowing and sleeting. And I looked at my wife and said, let's move to Charleston now. And four months later, the moving truck showed up. How about so, uh, I definitely, we definitely have a bit of a spontaneous streak in us, uh, I guess. But, uh, yeah, just turned 52 and, uh, and, and love living down here. Interesting, your accent, right? You're a Jersey kid, but the whole Richmond, the Charleston, which is definitely uh, a slower draw, so to speak, and especially Richmond. I'm amazed how I'm amazed how you can go from Washington, D.C. to Richmond. And it's a totally different sound. Two different uh, worlds, yeah. <laughs> but your your accent has been blended, right? You 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 they put it you put it in a little blender, and now it's all mixed up. And so you still got a little Jersey speed, but it's 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 slowed down a little because we're because of where you live. Yeah, it's, it's definitely become a little bit more neutral. Uh, although the Jersey will probably come out at times when I'm frustrated or, uh, or, or not happy about something. So yeah. uh, I've, I've been in, you know, I've been in the South, you know, more than half my life. So. Yeah. Very <clears> good. Really and so, and so you had one sister, uh, I think, right. One sibling. What'd your folks do? What'd your parents do? So um, my mom was a stay at home. So watched my, uh, my sister and I, my dad uh, was an entrepreneur, definitely where, I got, you know, I think my entrepreneurial um, urge, I guess. So he uh, he had a business that 
sold sales presentation aids. So the easiest way to describe it is when a pharmaceutical company was rolling out a new drug, they needed, you know, folders and all different sorts of products to roll out to their sales force. My dad is the one that would, would get all that for them. Interesting. Okay. Uh, did he have several businesses and lots of other investments or that was his primary thing? That was, no, that was the primary one. I mean, he, he made the decision. He was working for a, a larger company and felt like there was a, a better opportunity for him to roll out on his own. And he set up a desk at, at our home and started cold calling. And um, this, is, this is right in the middle of when we were, you know, I was in private school. My sister was, was on her way. And, uh, and you know, definitely, definitely took some risk, but it was absolutely the right thing for him to do. How about that? Okay, very good. Is he uh, not not with us anymore, or is he still around? No. Mom and dad are both in their mid eighties, and I mean, doing great, still playing golf. Uh, I mean, they're they're just doing fantastic. We're we're very fortunate. That's great. Where do they live? Williamsburg, Virginia. Although okay. we're in the process of. Um, a, kind of hopefully downsizing and having them relocate either to Richmond near my sister or uh, down here in Charleston. And you and your sister are going to flip a coin to see which way they go? <laughs> you know, it, I mean, my guess is it's Richmond. Uh, my my sister's kids are a little bit younger, so they'll have a chance to kind of see them grow. But, you know, we'll, we see them all the time. And we're, we're in Richmond. It's kind of a stopping off point when we head up to Dickinson. So we, we get to see family and friends whenever we go through. Okay. So that was a major influence on your life from a business perspective. Was he tough? Was he kind of a tough character? I know, I'm guessing he was born in uh, late thirties, early forties, something like that. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, no. And it's interesting to think about generations. So when my dad was growing up, his parents never went to watch anything he did, whether it was swimming or sports. And then it was the exact opposite with my sister and I and all the sports that we played. They cool. didn't miss a thing. I mean, they That's were cool. always there. I mean, driving us all over the place. My sister, you know, she played soccer in college. So all the travel soccer, I played tennis, you know, traveled all over the place for that. And honestly, I mean, you, you just couldn't have had, you know, more supportive, encouraging parents. And it's definitely, you know, influenced how my wife, Chris and I, you know, I think interact with our boys. And, and it's That's the same great. thing. I mean, we love traveling all over the place with them and, and supporting them with what they're trying to achieve with their, you know, their baseball and academics. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's definitely um, not normal. Most of those guys born in the late thirties, early forties were pretty hardcore. So it's great that he, he, he saw how his parents were and he's like, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be like that. Yeah, it's gonna, po polar opposite. Uh, that's pretty cool. All right. Very good. Athletic family, uh, two boys playing baseball. One is uh, what division is that in college he's playing? Uh, so it's Division Three, um, okay. up, up in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Dickinson's 240-year-old school. Academics are phenomenal. He he actually started um, at the Citadel. He went to the Citadel here in Charleston, a military school. Oh, okay. Uh, went to to play baseball, but it it just it wasn't the right fit. So when we looked at transferring, the focus was on high academic Division Three and. We, we just we couldn't be happier with what he has found, both with the baseball program. The academics are incredible. So it's just it, yeah. it's worked out brilliantly. Yeah. Division three schools, you know, traditionally those private divisions. I mean, the, yeah, the, the education is phenomenal um, for sure. Now, were you um, pretty surprised because I want to because I can relate this to a personal story even though your kid in high school was probably dominant, I'm guessing if he's playing, if he's playing college ball when he was in high school, he definitely was good. 
when he got to college, were, were you like, oh, shit, okay, everybody here is good. Everybody's good here. <laughs> so, you know, so Campbell, my older one, was the late bloomer, to be honest with you. And um, it was very late in the process where he was, you know, given an opportunity to, you know, to come out and try. And, and you know, candidly, he was he was at the lower end of the roster. I mean, I, okay. Okay. I don't care if you're, you know, any Division One program is going to have guys that can play. And Oh, and, yeah. and he probably was in a little bit over his head a little bit. And and so the, the reality is, I mean, if you there aren't huge differences outside of the power five between division one and division three programs where yep. there's a right. difference in depth. But when you put your starting guys up, they can compete. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Dickinson is I mean, it, they, they they're in one of the toughest conferences in the country. And I mean, the the beauty of this is they're having fun. I mean, I yes, can God. tell you that. Most kids on Division three programs are enjoying it a lot more than the kids on D1 programs. Yeah, yeah. Do you get to watch online? Do they stream uh, stuff so you can watch from home? They do, but the camera angle's awful. <laughs> so, Is it? Ah. Yeah, so we'll we'll travel a little bit. I'll head down to Florida over their spring break and, and spend the week down there watching them. And, you know, we'll we'll head up to Dickinson a couple times also. I don't, I don't mind getting in the car. And so it's a 14-hour drive, 13, 14-hour drive. So it's a... Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of phone calls on the road for me. Uh, that's great. You know, the fact that you spend so much time with the kids uh, going to the sports, it really means a lot. You know, it does mean a lot. And I don't think they really they don't realize it when they're 16, 17, 18. But when they get to be 25, 30 years old, they're going to reflect back and go, damn, you know, my dad was there almost every game. Like it, it really does mean a lot to them. And I, I did the same. I was fortunate enough you know blessed enough to be able to do that with my own schedule and i always encourage the people that work here at rider flex uh, with our team i always tell them like look if you got a baseball game at three o'clock you need to go because this is a this is a tiny window of time for you and your children that that and most of them will not play college sports right so it's like look you got this sophomore junior senior year like you got a three-year period you, like, you better go to every game because once it's over you can't go back this is not yeah. a movie you, you can't rewind it and do this again like once it's done it's done so invest the time i love the fact you're doing that yeah no i, I mean i've you know we've got three maybe four years because of uh um extra year of eligibility for him for my older son and mm-hmm. i've got three more years of high school and then you know hopefully four years of, of college ball so That's i great. Uh, i love every minute of it now, so you went to a good high, great high school, and then you went to Lynchburg. Were you a straight A student? Were you a rebel? Were you somewhere in the middle? Did you did you party I, a little? Was, did you did you get in any trouble? <laughs> so I, I was um I was as far from a straight A student as you could possibly get. Um, I I did very well in the courses that interested me. Okay. You know, when I I went to school, I thought I'd be an English major quickly decided that's not what I wanted and ended up majoring in communications again, not knowing what career path I wanted, but I figured if I can come out of here and effectively communicate, whether it be large audience one or one, it's going to apply to, to anything that I, I wanted to do. I was an entrepreneur growing up. Um, you know, so when I was in sixth grade, we would have a, you know, a snowstorm come through and I was up at 6am on the phone, lining up jobs to go shovel you know, dad bought a, a um, snowblower for us to use. So it, it, it increased what we were able to do. Nice. Um, started car detailing company, you know, during my summer year. So 
I was always, I think, more inclined to, um, to you know, probably to work and, and start things, which has certainly followed me through my career. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and look, I had a, I had a good time in college. Uh, some of my, <laughs> great, my greatest friends, you know, to this day, you know, I met them at Lynchburg College and uh, it was a long time ago, but it was a lot of fun. Wasn't college. And we're almost the same age. I'm 55. Uh, you know, yeah, college was a lot of fun. Recently, I did the uh, uh, not not the twenty three whatever we you send your DNA in. I did the, what was it? Ancestry. 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 Yeah, and uh, it's a long story. I was trying to figure out who my real blood father was, which is another whole podcast wow. episode. But uh, so I did it for that, right? But later on, like weeks later and months later, I started thinking, oh man, like what if there's a kid out there somewhere? <laughs> yeah, the old the old oops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Man, I don't know. Maybe I didn't want to do that. Anyway, uh, okay, very good. So good time. All right. So you get out of school. Uh, walk us through. You know, you don't have to touch every you know piece of your career, but kind of kind of walk us through the path to Charlestown Holdings, and then we'll get into that. But walk us through some of your early career. So coming out of school, I don't know why I got locked in on this, but I suddenly became very focused on on wealth management. And the more that I was told that I would never get hired coming directly out of school, the more determined I was to okay. break into the industry. And okay. so, um, I mean, I applied everywhere. I would go, I, I went to a wedding in Greenville and I stayed Sunday night to be able to walk into the Morgan Stanley office on, on Monday. Mm-hmm. I, um, this was the second semester of my senior year. I would go down, there was a, a firm called Scott and Stringfellow in Richmond, Virginia, based in Richmond, Virginia, but had an office in Lynchburg. And I would just go and sit in the office just to watch and see really? you know, what they were, they were doing. And I was turned down by Scott and Stringfellow. I was turned down by everybody. I still have the letter from Scott and Stringfellow turning me down. And through persistence, ultimately, they ended up hiring me in the, the Lynchburg office, um, which was kind of unheard of. They just weren't hiring college age kids eventually transferred to Richmond. And, and at this time, this is early 90s. So no cell phones, really, yeah. no computers. I was a, a rookie broker from New Jersey, sitting in the bullpen in Richmond, Virginia at a 100-year-old wealth firm. Mm. <laughs> I literally, it was just picking the phone up and dialing numbers, cold calling, cold calling, cold calling. It, it ultimately led to the ability to just have no fear to yep. reach out and communicate with somebody. And, and you know, you had to be really resourceful. Um, it, one story I love sharing, we were, we were doing an IPO for a community bank up in Northern Virginia, so about two hours north of us. And, and keep okay. in mind, we had offices in Northern Virginia. So I'm looking through the prospectus. I have no clients, and I'm reading the bios of the board members. So I said, why don't I just call the board members and ask them for referrals? Okay, good idea. Called every single board member. I had them reading out of their Rolodex. If the total offering, Steve, was, you know, let's call it 400,000 shares, I believe I did 170,000 shares of it. And wow. it just, it just took, my career took off from there. How about And that? with a really big focus on community banking. But it, it flashed forward. I eventually, uh, they allowed me to open an office. I was probably the youngest branch manager in the history of the firm. Nice. Um, at 28 years old, I was recruiting brokers, and I just 
really at that point did not like what I was doing anymore. I Why? Just, Why? You know, I didn't, I didn't feel like, I felt like it was a transaction. I didn't feel like I was really building anything. Okay. Uh, yeah, I can see that. And, yeah. um, and so it, it started me, you know, kind of on a path moving toward, um, you know, more, let's call it alternative investments, um, investment banking, private equity. Um, in 1998, I started an internet company called netgolfshop.com. Really? Uh, okay. All one right. of my, my best friends from college or from high school. And um, this is where we were going in and putting kiosks on the floors of green grass golf shops to carry virtual inventory to complement what they had already on their floor. All right. Time people said, man, this is a really good idea. It expands what they could sell. Uh, we, we ended up getting caught in the kind of the internet crash of 99, 2000. What ultimately would have been the demise of the business was that every kiosk was running on dialogue. So if you weren't actively using the kiosk in three or four minutes, it would go offline. So, I mean, again, you know, thinking back to, I mean, this is a long time ago, but yeah. that, that ultimately would have been what would have killed us. So, um, okay. so okay. I, I went back on my path and, and from that point forward, we had our son Campbell and um, I quit a job at Merrill Lynch six weeks after he was born and launched a firm called West Ham Capital Partners, which was a private equity focused firm. Um, I go back to, I referenced my dad earlier when I was in private school and everything that he had going on and, and making the decision to just pick up and go start his own thing. It was, it was a very similar process for me. So uh, that was the, that was the first time besides the other little business you had there, Winston partners was the first, first, your first gig. Was that just your, your business? Did you have a co-founder partners? Okay. So w Winston partners was a private equity and um, uh, hedge funded funds firm. Uh, started by um, two uh, UBA classmates, um, Scott Andrews and, and Marvin Bush. Okay. Um, so I had a, it, it was a short stint there because I went and started the internet company after that. But Oh, I see. Marvin Bush, hands down, had maybe the biggest impact on me professionally that anyone has ever had. Mm. And um, I mean, I'm, as I'm sitting here, I mean, I, I have a handwritten note from him that came to me that, that still sits right next to me that I look at every day. And I like it. It was, um, Marvin is really the one that taught me how to build and nurture relationships. And to this day, every single day, I mean, there's something that I probably learned from him that I'm applying to what I do. That's excellent. That's great. It's nice of you to mention him. Okay, very good. So you then walk us through a little bit more you spent what nine years um somewhere where where did you the longest stint you had where, where was that nine well years. so what so it would have been west ham capital yeah that's right okay and so so west ham um so what we were doing is we were partnering with non-competitive private equity groups and we were overseeing the deal sourcing for them okay. Okay. And then we would we would put you know once we identified deals that they would lead we would put co-investment vehicles together. I see. So um, had a had a partner there that um, he ended up kind of transitioning out and it was around that point that we decided not too long after to to pick up and relocate down to Charleston. It was also around this time that I made the decision that I wanted to focus on sports media and entertainment. I had built a lot of contacts up and a network there and. To a certain degree, it was almost like I was starting my career over at the age of, you know, probably 39. Okay. But it was where my passion was. And, you know, I, 
felt like it was the right place for me to focus. And, you know, I went through a period, we started a little firm in Richmond that was basically uh, merged into Courtview Capital, which was a portfolio company of Warburg Pincus. Um, that basically Courtview kind of blew up. Okay. And that it was right after that that I moved to Charleston and ultimately started an a investment banking firm called Alchemy Global, okay. which was a, an investment banking firm focused exclusively on sports media and entertainment and uh, with an eye more toward earlier stage companies. Uh, so did that for you know probably close to four years. Um, I said one of the highlights of that was a deal that we did with with um, Adidas over in Germany. We represented a company that uh, called Storelli that makes protective apparel for soccer. Okay. So, All right. All right. Uh, we were we were at the headquarters of of Adidas in the the boardroom with their nice. CEO board members. Uh, it, it was it was a really amazing experience, and they ended up in, in, investing in the company. But it also became, you know, for me, um, and, and you can see, I mean, I've had, I'm not afraid to, to look at something, make an assessment and, and make a decision. And for me at Alchemy, it was being an advisor and a banker to early stage companies was just a shitty place to be. It's just, you're adversarial with funding sources because they don't like the idea of money not going into a company to help grow. They hate the idea that you got to go and pay fees. And so it just felt like everything was adversarial. And so that's okay. when I finally said, you know what, this just, I, I'm not, this isn't working anymore. I don't like it. I don't want to do this anymore. And, right. and we wound it down, but kept, key thing was we kept the broker dealer. Okay. So what I love about your career so far is that you are not afraid to pivot and make changes and close something up or do something different. Like if you don't like it, it's just a great tip for the listeners, right? If you're not doing something you really enjoy, then just do something different. Like stop, make a move. You know, in the recruiting business, you know, for a living, I talk to candidates, right? Besides the podcast. And I can't tell you how many people are miserable <laughs> in their jobs. And I, you know, they're always, well, I'm afraid, you know, if I make a move, what if I, if I quit and I got, you know, the other job, I'm like, Matthew, Life is too short to do something you don't want to do. Like you really need to be happy with what you're doing. And I love the fact that you're, you're like that. You've been like that from the beginning. You're like, look, I'm going to do this. If it's fun, if I'm having fun, great. If I'm not, it doesn't matter whether I'm making money or not. I want to have a good time. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And it, I mean, look, I mean, early on there, you certainly could look at my career path and say like, oh my God, you went from here to here to here to here. And, and, and I, you know, at the time, that's probably the case, right? But, yeah. you know, for me, uh, a book that I love is called True North, and it, it, it's really about following kind of your inner compass. And and for me, my compass was not pointing in the right direction at those times. I and, love it. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I learned something from every single stop. One of the things that I learned is I'm a shitty employee. I mean, <laughs> I, it just... Most, you know, most entrepreneurs are. <laughs> yeah, it's it just, and, and so, you know, so I finally looked at it and said, look, I can, you know, embrace who I am. I mean, this is probably in my late thirties. Mm. And, you know, for me, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm someone that also likes being involved in, you know, multiple different projects or deals or companies. And, and so I, I think the biggest thing that I did was I embraced it. And I said, this is who I am. Right. And so, you know, as I understand who I am. I understand who I'm not. And, and how do I learn from both of those pieces as I, you know, continue throughout my career? 
You know, I I was a little later than you. I was probably mid to late 40s before I really got completely comfortable with who I was, what my strengths were, what my weaknesses were, and became became very relaxed and talking about my weaknesses, you know. And now at my at mid 50s, I'm, I'm like, look, I'll I'll tell you what I'm great at. I'll tell you what I suck at. I have no yeah. problem talking. I'm not going to try to hide anything. I'm not going to try to fake anything. I'm not going to try to pretend like I'm somebody different. Uh, here's here's what I do well. Here's what I don't do well. <laughs> it's a, yeah, and, and and you surround. I mean, and then you start to identify and surround yourself with people. Yes. That are going to be you know complementary, kind of yes. the yin or yang, right? And and it, it, you know it makes life so much. I mean, look, life's not easy, but. It, it certainly, when you're allowed to, to focus on the things that, again, you're passionate about, about and, and that you do well, and you're aligned with people that can support that, it, it, I mean, it makes working in life a hell of a lot easier. It really does. Or, yeah, surround yourself with people that complement your skill sets and people that you enjoy being yeah. around. I mean, that's another one. You know, I talk to early stage uh, founders and startup entrepreneurs all the time on the podcast. And, uh, you know, they'll tell me things like, well, I, I, I'm going to this conference because I need to find a co-founder. And I'm th- I'm always like, oh, God, OK. <laughs> First of all, you, you really need to you need to partner with somebody, you know, somebody you like, somebody you can hang around because you're going to get to know their families. Yep. You're going to go to dinner. You're going to I mean, everything. I mean, you, you know, and it's important skill set is important but you got to enjoy the person and you got to connect with them on so many levels especially in a small startup uh, situation because you're, you're going to almost live with the person pretty much i think it's critical um and that's one of the things i love about riderflex just the people right about well, you know my partner scott my co-founder you know i just i trust that guy with my life right plus plus we just enjoy hanging out like we can go yeah. to, we can go for beers and talk about whatever you know like if my wife's getting on my nerves that week, I can talk to him about it. <laughs> Sorry, honey. Well, it, you know, it, 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 it comes down to, I mean, you've got to have that, that person or people that, you know, allows you to not have to go through, you know, the, the severe highs and the severe lows. And, and, you know, sometimes I got to be, I got to be pulled back. And sometimes, you know, with my colleagues, I need to push them forward a little bit. So again, it's that, very complimentary, you know, that the, the time you need it is when, you know, maybe me pushing helps or them pulling back helps, but yeah, you're right. It's, it's, you're closer than a family member in many cases. Absolutely. All right. So Charlestown Holdings started in 2018, by the way, just for the listeners real quick, it is charlestownholdings.com. Um, also, um, I want to make sure that Andy Brusman is also on LinkedIn. You can connect with him there. Um, Give us the scoop. You started it in 2018. Um, how'd you start it? Do you have any co-founders? Then just give us the overview. Go for it. So, so I mentioned earlier, um, Alchemy Global wound that down, kept the broker dealer. I'll come back to that in a second. I decided okay. at that point, while I was still doing work in sports media and entertainment, that I was, I was going to get to know the the Charleston region. Okay. I really all my entire career was outside of of Charleston, and so. I mean, I set out to really, you know, go and meet with a lot of different professionals and, and people here in the Charleston market. And it was during the course of, of this and getting to know people, I got a phone call from um, Mike Sanderson. I had gotten to know Mike 
uh, on a deal. We were helping uh, him raise money for a business that he started called bonds.com. So this is back when I was at Courtview. And Mike called and said, I'm, I'm moving to Charleston from uh, from Connecticut and, uh, you know, want to find out what's going on down there. I want to you know get involved in something. Okay. So uh, Mike came down and the head of our broker dealer, Scott Alario, and I met Mike at a, a gas station, basically on, on Daniel Island. And it was there that we said, look, we've got a broker dealer. One of the things that I was noticing as I was networking in Charleston is I identified a number of investment bankers in Charleston that were here still in the heart of their career, but there was no hometown firm. There was no real firm headquartered in Charleston. And so at that point, late 2018, you know, Mike Scott and I said, look, let's, we had the broker dealer, let's launch an investment banking firm that is headquartered in Charleston. At the time, we thought we would be a, a niche Southeastern focused investment banking firm. And there were three pillars that we wanted to build Charlestown on. It was going to be built around teamwork, collaboration, and most importantly, the no asshole rule. So if you take those three, that eliminates about 98% of the investment bankers out there because it is a very sharp elbowed, you know, focus on me type industry. Yeah. Um, we launched, I'm going to say with about 11 people. Um, and then over the course of through 2019 and 20, what I guess I didn't expect was those three pillars would be attractive to people outside of the Charleston market. And if you, mm. Flash forward to today, you know, we're we're close to 30 professionals Great. all over the country. There's only about seven of us here in Charleston. And um, and we've got a, a unique mix of very senior level operating people, so former C-level individuals, complemented by a core team of what I call true investment bankers. And you know, we're doing deals 10 to 100 million, kind of an average. Um, sell side uh, private placements, and we are multiple industries. I, again, I still focus on sports media and entertainment, but you know we've we've done deals all over the the number of verticals. An office there in Charleston, and then everybody else is remote, or what are you doing? Or one hundred percent remote? It's one hundred percent remote. COVID hit, and we were in an office building downtown called the Cigar Factory. Mm -hmm. Really, really, you know, popular location. You got easy access part and. When shutdowns went on, I knew that even with lockdowns, somebody was going to want our office, and we were able to get out of it pretty quickly. Yeah, great move. Uh, great move. And the managing directors, are they um, – I don't know how this works. This, forgive this ignorant question. Are they they're not? Are they employees, or are they 1099 contractors? How does that work? Yeah, everything's 1099 yeah, yeah. You know, with us. So you know, they're, they're licensed. The investment bankers are licensed with our broker-dealer. Okay. Um, and so – you know, most of them, this is all that they do. Uh, mm -hmm. There's, you know, there's some that might have maybe some investments and some other things that they'll also focus on. But, mm -hmm. you know, the, the core team, I mean, they are, this, this is what they wake up and do every day. Yeah. Now you're big enough, though, where you're you're basically in management. You're, you're back in management now, pretty much. I mean, I don't know if you're still doing some deals yourself, but you've got a big enough team and a big enough company where you're dealing with running a company which is you know a lot of people management are you happy with that are you happy with what you're doing day to day now yeah you know it, it's a it's a good question so i made the kind of the conscious decision to not lead any deals about a year ago okay and um it, look i was never classically trained as an investment banker i mean i'm 
I mean, flashback to uh, the late 90s at Winston Partners, I was having to have one of the private equity guys explain to me what EBITDA was. I had no clue. <laughs> so I, I never had the classic, you know, analyst training going through everything. Um, and so I'm fortunate that Mike Sanderson and Scott Alario, you know, they're able to handle a lot of the internal pieces with the firm, running the broker-dealer, the operations and everything else. And let's me focus on rainmaking, quite okay. frankly. So okay. Okay. Um, sourcing deals, I'm not, I, nothing I love more than being able to source deals and hand them off to investment bankers. I, you know, I focus on identifying talent, you know, to bring on board relationships yeah. with buyers and investors. I spend a lot of time in London and, okay. and so we'll be spending more time over there as well, um, working with private equity groups that need a firm like ours to help portfolio companies come over into the US. So that that's a, a major growth area for us. So, so I'm getting to do the things that I enjoy and am very fortunate that Mike and Scott can, can handle the stuff that would drive me absolutely crazy. <laughs> we run our companies very similar, my friend. I do the same thing. I, I'm uh, the rainmaker and uh, I mean, I, I have about 30 recruiters now and uh, I'll still get involved a little bit with the recruiting, but yeah, I got people that can do that, which, uh, which is great. So we're very similar. Let me ask you this. Do you enjoy, if you had to force rank, do you enjoy talking to billionaires uh, that want to invest uh, more or do you like the visiting with uh, a, a company founders that you're looking to invest in and diving into that and deciding whether or not they're a good investment? If you had to force rank it. Uh, I'd say definitely the companies, um, okay. you know, I mean, so, you know, it, we operate, you know, we operate in a world where, you know, we will interact with some family offices. It's a very unique set of investors um, and perspectives, some good, some bad, mm -hmm. but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, I really enjoy the company and, and thinking about the pathways that we can help create to find the right investment partner for them or, the right buyer for them. Um, that that to me is is the most exciting part of of what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, the negotiations and stuff like that. It, it's fine. I mean, we've had our share of butting heads with you know groups as big as KKR to you know to others. But um, it's definitely working with the entrepreneurs and and understanding the business that I think is the most interesting. Do most deals fall apart because of personalities and egos, or because the math just doesn't work? It's, you know, it's a combination. Um, and, and so it's actually a good question and, and kind of segues into something that we started doing last year. I, I mentioned we've got, you know, eight or nine of these very senior level uh, operating people, mm -hmm. which is, mm -hmm. uh, so they'll do advisory work for companies, outsource CEO, CFO. Um, so I started putting them on teams on investment banking deals, which, which was kind of unheard of. And, and the role that ultimately was created was CEO Whisperer. Because Ooh, I, like I like it. That individual is the only one that our client, the CEO, can relate to, right? So a lonely world, lonely it, job. <laughs> it, it, so the psychological aspect of going through a transaction to have someone who's a fellow operator who has also been through a process mm. that can play that psychologist role has, mm. it, it has actually, it has, saved some deals from blowing up and closing. And it's actually gotten us the mandate on some deals because it, it's such a unique approach. No one else is doing it. Mm. So, um, mm. so again, that's, 
I mean, I we try it. to think creatively in, the, in this business, which it's not a business known for creativity. I love uh, that whole CEO whisperer. You know, uh, for, for anybody listening, if you are a CEO, if you are a founder, you, you, you get it right. It is a lonely, scary ass, super stressful world that really even your wife or your spouse or your partner, even they can't really fully relate, right? Like you're, nope. ta- you're, ta- you're talking to them and you're trying to express, but, you know, and they're trying to be sympathetic and they're trying to be supportive, but even they don't get it, right? It's, and you can't tell your employees everything. I mean, I've always tried to be as transparent as I can as a CEO, but there's some stuff you just can't share. It, it is a lonely world. And this is why CEOs start drinking too much and start do- doing the bad things <laughs> so, because no, it's just... <laughs> hundred percent. And for many of them, the business that they may be thinking about selling, they're doing it because it's, it's the right time in their life to do it. But it's like a child. It is. And yes. the, the thought process of letting your child go, no matter how much money you may be getting paid, mm-hmm. is a really, really hard process to go through. So any, you know, that's why having that the team of operators is, I believe, going to be critical in how we continue to, to scale our business. Mm, I like it. I really like that a lot. Yeah, that, that's a great move. You said 10 to, what'd you say? The investment is 10 to 100 million usually? Is that what you're targeting? Okay, so what kind? what's your company target then? What's your revenue and EBITDA target? Yeah, so so just to also be clear, you know, we, we aren't really doing any of our own investing right okay. now. We've, we've done a, a couple little deals. We did a deal in the music space. Um, we've co-invested in some of the deals, but Everything is where companies are hiring us to go out and find the buyer or the capital. Okay. Um, so we don't do startups. It's just, again, relating back to my days at Alchemy, uh, that's, it's, it's not a world that we can, you know, we can really serve. Okay. Um, so, you know, companies are going to have anywhere, I mean, you, can, you know, they could have 5 million of revenue and, and going out for their series A of, you know, 10, 15, $20 million dollars. Uh, to, you know, we we just recently were the advisor to a company out of Austria that sold to Cargill, and that was, a, you know, close to a, a nine-digit transaction. So it, it just, it's going to range in terms of the amount of revenues, and, and it, companies don't have to be cash flow positive. I mean, we- They don't have to be cash flow positive, but they do have to be established with revenue, and yes. it can't just be, it can't be an idea with a PowerPoint. Yeah, I mean, that, that's, <laughs> we're, we're, we're not- the ones for you there and and we'll you know try to push them in a direction that could make more sense and do you push most of these people these companies towards family offices angel money pe vc banks all of the above yeah so we're we are institutionally focused so while there has been a deal here or there where you know we had to you know probably tap into the high net worth market we prefer not to so you know, our world is, you know, it's strategic acquirers as well as investors. You know, many corporations have actually set up formal investment platforms, companies like Hearst uh, Ventures, as an example. Okay. Um, you know, so, you know, all the strategics, private equity, um, growth capital, VC, family offices, you yeah. know, that, it, but it all, you know, it all is going to come down to, I mean, obviously, industry expertise and interest. And then what is the right alignment with what our client is trying to achieve? Mm-hmm. And, 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 and there are, you know, you'll have some that will just say, look, I don't want private equity or VC. Yeah. I want family office because, you know, they'll tend to have a longer term timeframe. So you just, you have to kind of mix and match depending on 
what your client is looking for. I know, I know if you were asking me at Riderflex, if we were about to take on cash, I would take a family office before PE just based yep. on all everything I know. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Uh, uh, okay. Very good. And do you, what's your business model? Do you take a piece of the money raised? Do you take a piece of equity in the company? All the above? What's your model? How, how are you making money? So um, the typical engagement for us is a, a monthly retainer and then we get paid success fees on the deal and success okay. fees will either be based on the amount of capital that's raised and type of capital. So, okay. you know, you'll get paid more on equity than you would debt. Uh, it could be based on if it's a sell side engagement, it's a percentage of the enterprise value. Mm -hmm. For investment banking mandates, we do not ask for equity. I, I, I've always been puzzled on, on how an investment bank justifies asking for equity when really all you're doing is managing a financial transaction. There's, there's nothing you're doing operationally to boost the value of the business. Good point. That's a great point. Um, now, yeah. Our operating guys, we will get equity um, with them um, if they're stepping in in a role for a company as an outsourced C-level individual. I see. I see. Okay, very good. How many companies knock on your door and say, Andy, help me find cash? And what percentage do you say, I, no? <laughs> yeah, you know, so it is like most, I mean, this is a very relationship driven business. So, you know, our deal flow is going to come from, you know, years long relationships uh, where, you know, we built trust and, and, have, you know, known people that either is the client or somebody that's referring a deal to us. And then the other way is, is expertise. If you do a deal in an industry, you do one deal, you get noticed, you do two deals, you're an expert. Mm. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, we have, we have several industries where, you know, we've got, you know, really strong deal backgrounds and history so, um, you know, I, I, it's hard to see. I'm not even sure because okay. I don't necessarily see all okay. the deals that our guys okay. see, but yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, we see, we have a, a pretty significant amount of deal flow. Now you're doing, uh, just to be clear, a uh, layman's terms here, you're, you're, if, if I wanted to sell or merge, you could help me do that. Or if I just wanted to raise cash, either way, Correct. you're doing yes. it. Okay. And are you doing the implementation of the, the merger? Like, are you sticking around? Are you, are you like, no, I'm just going to ink the deal. You sign it. You guys are merged. Okay, good luck. Or do you send in your troops to do some transitional work there after companies merge? So to date, everything that we do finishes at the point when the deal is consummated and dollars have exchanged hands. Well, you could now, use that. That, that, that whisper could hang around and make sure people uh, get along and play nice in the sandbox. So, so, I mean, it's, it actually is a great example where, you know, we do, we could have somebody that could stay and yeah. help with implementation, you know, yes. if it's needed. I mean, we, I mean, if you, if you look at the level, we, you know, we have the former CEO of Jimboree, we oh, have the you. former president and CEO of Discovery Network, the former right. CFO of Feld Entertainment, like, oh, these are real people yeah. that bring significant experience mm. and, and actually, in my meetings in London, you know, I, I'm meeting with smaller private equity groups over there to talk to them about utilizing this operating team to help a portfolio company expand into the U.S. Yes. So Why instead not? of yeah. throw a lot of money, open an office, have to go out and, you know, utilize our team, leverage yeah. the relationships for business, and then leverage the talent network. Right. And then also, if they need to raise capital from U.S. investors or they want to sell and it's a likely U.S., buyer, you know, engage a team like us, because up to this point, they talked to Goldman Sachs and others. Goldman's never going to 
touch the deals that we're talking about. Yeah. Why, why, what's the London connection? Why are you focused over there? What, what's, what's driving that? So um, I just, I, I developed a network there starting with my alchemy days, had several what? investors over there, um, okay. have had deals that we've okay. worked on out of London and in, in sports media and entertainment. I mean, you can argue that there are a couple of hubs in the world that everything goes through and, and London is one of those hubs. Um, but also it just, it, it, it's a little bit of a differentiator because I mean, even if I sit here and, and talk about this idea of what, what I'm doing with private equity groups, our peer groups aren't going to all of a sudden just pick up and start going to London and start pitching the same thing. It just, you know, this is eight years of relationships that I've built that have finally gotten us to this point. You know, you've mentioned relationships a few times in this conversation. I just want to share with the listeners, uh, you know, networking and relationships, it, it's just so critical. We just signed a new agreement here at Rider Flex. I have known that guy for 25 years, 25 years yeah. that I've known this guy. And he, you know, he watches our social media. And so he, he, he knows what we do. And he, he, he had a need and he reached out. And uh, I, just, I just tell my team, I'm like, you, you know, I just can't emphasize it enough. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how, how high your IQ is. I don't care how, what your skill set is. If you're an asshole and you don't have good people skills and you don't network and you don't build relationships, you're not going to be successful, period, period. So, <laughs> and the other thing I that I add to that is I, I read a book years ago by Keith Ferrazzi called Never Eat Alone. Again, another no, yeah. game-changing book for me. And, and at the heart of that book, it, it's generosity of your network. Mm. And I think what what people need to understand is, is that every introduction doesn't need to be a transaction. If, right. if I'm, if I make an intro to you and you get engaged and you successfully place somebody, you're going to think well of me. And that client yes. is going to think well of me. And you've just built up some relationship currency and bingo, bingo. Right? you never know when it's going to come back. But inevitably, if you, if you operate day to day like that, it will come back. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And that, you know, to, to, you know, to take that just one step further, and wrap that up is just do the right thing. Be nice to people, help people, just help people make introductions. It's going to come back your way. Guarantee it. The, here's a perfect example of that. C-level um, candidates that are in a transition will often call me and say, they'll, the, so, so at RiderFlex, you know, our business model is companies hire us to place talent. We don't, we're not candidate services, right? We don't, we don't, uh, we don't get a C-level person and they pay us. The company's right. paying us. But C-level candidates that know me from my past or they see us, they will, they'll call me and they'll say, hey, I'm in a transition. I just want to talk. Can you give me some advice? What do you think about this? What do you think about that? I always take those phone calls. Do I get paid for those? No. Do I, you know, is that part of our business model? No. But those are relationships that, guess what? Nine months later, that CEO gets a job somewhere. And he's like, hey, Steve, I need talent over here. I mean, you just do the right thing. It's, it's yeah. another example. Just build relationships. Uh, very good. So I, okay. A fun, just a quick funny story on that. Uh, living in Richmond, there was a, one individual who worked at a hedge fund who never returned calls. And a good friend and I, we were having a beer one night. And I said, you know, one day he's going to need us. Yeah. And the call's not going to come back. And sure enough, all of a sudden, all this outbound networking because he was in, in transition and people yep. wouldn't call him back. So, I mean, it, there you go. It, it, it's real what, what you just discussed. Absolutely. 
let me ask you this. I know we're getting close to the back end. I want to ask you to give us some, some advice here to entrepreneurs. So you, you talk to mediums. Well, I'll call it small to medium sized business owners all the time, right? I mean, all the time, all the time you see startup founders, you've seen it all. You've seen, you've seen a shit ton at this point. <laughs> if you were, if you were to give, and I know we could do a whole podcast episode on this question, but if you could give two or three pieces of advice to some co-founders thinking that they are ready to raise some cash because they want to scale and they want to go from what I would call lifestyle business to a growth business and, and maybe sell it someday there. Okay. Yeah. We have this little family business. It's cool. That's great. But I want to, I want to take it. I want to take it to the next level. I want to go from 5 million to 50 million and flip this. And so we need some cash to do it. How, what, how would you start the conversation with them? What kind of advice would you give them? Well, first, I think what I would say is make sure you're doing it for the right reasons. Mm. It, it, you know, if you're sitting here saying, I want to scale this because I want to sell it, mm -hmm. that's okay. But between the point of raising the money and selling it is going to take an effort that if your only reason for doing this is that end sale is going to make that process much more challenging. Mm. Um, you know, so I think, you know, you've got to be doing it for the right reasons. And ultimately, if your reasons are, you know, you want to expand because you see market opportunity, you're, you know, you're able to, you know, provide jobs to people and, you know, be a force for good in the community. And the end result happens to be a successful organization that gets sold is a much smoother path than if what you're solely set out to do is start, scale, sell. It will be a much much bumpier process. Um, mm, mm. I think the second thing I would say is um, surround yourself with people that, you know, aren't yes people. Um, surround yourself with people that, you know, are willing to challenge your thoughts, your beliefs, your views. Mm -hmm. um, seek out people that have been through it. So, you know, back to this role, you know, I find your own CEO whispers and learn from them about what they did right, what they did wrong. And, and then learn how to apply that to whatever process that you might be going through. And, and I think the final thing is um, valuation is important, but it, it shouldn't be the defining reason for why you do a deal with somebody. Okay. Because I, I, I can argue that um, there are deals that might close at a higher valuation, but where there is an absolute personality clash between the team and the investors versus, a, you know, so focus on personality match and culture math match and less on the ultimate valuation. Great point. Great tip. Could, couldn't agree more. I want to add to this. We'll wrap this one up and then I'll ask you one more question. I know we're almost out of time. I'll share my own uh, kind of uh, story with this from lifestyle to growth, right? So before RiderFlex, I was the CEO of a couple of different different companies and then starting RiderFlex at first, you know, I wanted to have a recruiting firm, wanted it to be remote and I wanted it to just be something I could do as I got older. Right. Um, and so I, I, the whole time I was thinking, I'm just, this is a lifestyle business. And then it started growing. And then, you know, this year we'll do a little over 2 million in revenue. And so now, you know, of course I visit with startup people and folks like you all the time. So now I'm like, oh, okay, maybe we should, maybe it's time to, maybe, maybe we should take out some cash and, just go for it and grab, you know, do some mergers and acquisitions, 
grab a couple of other recruiting firms and flip this thing to Corn Ferry and blah, 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 blah. Anyway, I'm at dinner with one of the best advisory board members we have. He's a great guy. He runs a family office in Denver. And uh, he's like, what are you talking about? He's like, you, you're living a good life. You're going camping when you want in the mountains of Colorado. You're finally making a decent salary. Your firm's doing fine. He's like, what just, what's wrong with just doing what you're doing? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and the point I'm making there for the listeners is, I know we all watch these movies and you see the internet, right? Where, where the startup founders started a business and they flipped it and they all made millions of dollars. That, that, is, a, that is a very, very, very tiny uh, percentage of people. And it is okay if you're listening to this podcast and you just, you just have a little business that's a family business and it's kicking you off a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and your life's good. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and again, there's, there's the balance. I mean, it's, it's okay to have aspirations sure. to, to grow out of a lifestyle business, but just make sure the aspirations are attainable. Yeah. And, and, and that's where I go back to if that, if, if it's just about the sale, I would argue that your aspirations are going to be very challenging. Doesn't mean you won't achieve them, but they'll be very challenging. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Great stuff. Andy, last uh, question here. I, I, I asked this to a lot of people. So you're 52. Um, life's been pretty good. You've had a great career. Uh, your boys are getting older now. Um, if you had to define Andy's core purpose in life now, like moving forward, a couple of sentences, Andy's overall core purpose at this stage, how would you define that? Um, so I think a big part of it is, I mean, it's kind of a weird age, right? You're, you're looking back at a fair amount and still have a lot of runway ahead of you. And I think it's natural that you start to think about like, okay, how, how would I approach this differently? Um, you know, I think, you know, one, I mean, I, I want to treat myself a little bit better. And, and I don't mean by, you know, I mean, I work out every day, but I want to be less hard on myself. Um, I, I want to, I need to take a step back and actually enjoy the process and everything that's going on. That's important. Um, I, you know, I want to be involved in the community. I've, you know, I've been trying to get the Sandlot Initiative launched for you know four and a half years right now, which is going to focus on bringing baseball back to inner city communities. Love it. Um, so you know, I think it's things like that that just candidly just be a better person, and um, you know, seek out experiences as opposed to things. And so you know, I think people will tend to look outward feeling like they need to make a change. And I think sometimes the best change you can make is when you're looking inward because of the impact it's going to have on everyone around you. And so I think for me, my core purpose is, you know, is figuring out what that person's going to be like and hopefully have a really positive impact on my family, my friends, and the community. Love it. One of the great quotes I've heard in the last few years is, um, I want my life to be dictated or I'm sorry. I don't want my life to be dictated by material things. I want it to be dictated by the experiences I'm chasing, which is kind of what you said. I love it. Well, and, and, and the final, you know, the quote that I've, you know, always thought about there is no one ever sat on their deathbed and said, I wish I had worked more. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Andy, thank you so much for being on the Rider Flex podcast and sharing your story. I really appreciate it. No, see, thank you. Enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun.